0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to betterhelp.com toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to betterhelp.com toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and we're going to be talking about Journey to Recovery. Um, and this is our continuation of our series, and we're talking about relapse prevention today. We're going to define relapse, relapse triggers, relapse warning signs, explore the function of relapse and differentiate it from resistance, and identify essential components for a relapse prevention plan. Okay, so one of the things that I want to start out emphasizing for those of you who haven't been in a lot of my classes before, when I talk about relapse... I am talking about mental health relapse, I am talking about behavioral relapse, and I am talking about addiction relapse. Any of those. We're not just talking about substances. So kind of keep your your mind broad when we're talking about these things. Because when clients come in, um, I, I tell them that treatment is often like mountain climbing. It is a lot of hard work. But relapse prevention planning starts at the beginning because I want them to make sure that they get their climbing cams in So, if they happen to regress a little bit, they don't fall all the way back to the beginning. You know, I want to make sure that they've got handholds on the way up that mountain. Um, And relapse prevention is one way of doing that. I want them to come in and go through their assessment and leave their assessment feeling like, okay, I am going to move forward from here. And, you know, hopefully I won't ever come back to this place. But even more, hopefully I won't get worse. And obviously, we can't promise that, but we do want to give clients some hope. So the first stage in relapse prevention planning is stabilization. We need to get the client to a place where they are medically, socially, emotionally, and cognitively stable, as stable as they can be. You know, if you've got somebody with early onset Alzheimer's, they're not going to be as stable as somebody else, but we need to, you know, get the client at their optimal level of stabilization to participate in treatment planning and assessment. We're not asking for them to be just ducky. Then assessment of the situation and any negative patterns or problems that contribute to past relapses. And and this is what we're going to start talking about. What's going on? And have you had periods where you were asymptomatic before, where you weren't depressed, where you weren't anxious, where you weren't using, whatever it is. And you know if you did what was different and since you are now symptomatic again what things do you think contributed to the resurgence of your symptoms the assessment gives you a lot of good practical information and obviously you're going to do treatment planning and everything else uh, but in this initial relapse prevention planning session which i usually do um, in concert with treatment planning in the second session but That depends on your agency. Um, You're going to start talking about relapse education, and we want to educate the client as well as his or her social supports about the recovery process. It is not a straight line forward. It's going to be two steps forward and one step back and kind of like a cha-cha, and that's okay. Motivation is the same way because life happens. And it's important for clients to recognize that, you know, even if they feel like they're Becoming more dysphoric or having more problems um, that they hadn't been having it doesn't mean all is lost. It doesn't mean they're on a free fall It just means they've started to do the cha-cha a little bit and that's okay. We need to figure out what changed and Add in some interventions One thing we can do with in early relapse prevention planning and early relapse education whether you can put little videos on your website or you can provide handouts or both both is recommended, but not every agency is willing to do um, educational videos. We want to help everybody involved on this treatment team, and I'm including the family and social supports in the treatment team. We want to educate all of them about relapse for this particular client. What are the symptoms? What do we know might trigger those symptoms? What do we know triggers those symptoms for this client? And what are some warning signs that they might be you know headed down a relapse path relapse doesn't happen overnight relapse progresses it's kind of like um when my kids were sick i don't notice it or little i don't notice it as much anymore but right before they would get sick for about a week you know maybe a couple of days they would become irritable and disorganized and just kind of not themselves there was nothing i could really put my finger on but As I got to know them, as they grew up a little bit, I recognized in both of them that when they did that, there was a pretty darn good chance that in the next week they would be coming down with a cold or an ear infection. That was just kind of the way it was. So understanding the relapse warning signs that something is getting ready to happen, whether it's physical or emotional, is really important. And social supports are in a perfect position to help with this. Now, it has to be okay with the client, you know, the client doesn't want people looming and henpecking all the time, but, you know, it's helpful sometimes if the people that you're living with occasionally point out, you know, it seems like you've been burning the candle at both ends lately, which, you know, in the past has led to you having a relapse, you know, I'm concerned. You, You don't have to henpeck, you don't have to, um, go, go crazy about that, um, Warning sign identification and management So we're going to talk about relapse warning signs and I've already kind of touched on those But we do need to educate people about what warning signs are Trigger identification and management so warning signs that says something's impending You know we need to be alert kind of like when you know you start to see clouds coming in and You know there's probably going to be a storm What are the warning signs for um, relapse for that client? What are the triggers? And that's different. So what are the things that trigger this? What things, if stay with the weather metaphor, what things in the environment trigger the development of rain clouds, which, you know, when we see them, know that there's, say, a storm coming in. So we're going to talk more about triggers. And then recovery planning is putting it all together. Our understanding of what relapse is and when it happens, Um, our understanding of that particular client's warning signs and how to manage and mitigate them. Our understanding of that particular client's triggers and how to manage and mitigate them. Um, And then we're going to help them start practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness training helps people anticipate, evaluate, and avoid high-risk situations. So they're educated now. They know what might trigger a relapse for them. You know not everything but they have a good idea and they're more aware they understand the relapse um, process and hopefully they're starting to develop some tools but if they are off in la-la land and not paying attention it's gonna be a train wreck um, so clients need to be mindful they can have all the tools in the world but if they're not paying attention to when they need to use those tools it doesn't do a lot of good family involvement is the next stage, if you will. And I usually get them involved earlier, but you know, whenever you can get family involved because the family needs to be, continue to be supportive. And then follow up. Recovery is never static. Life is never static. So people may have periods where they wax and wane that doing that little cha-cha and that's okay. Not everybody will have to come back into treatment when they, I don't never figured out whether wax or wane was going backwards but i digress (laughs) when people start to become slightly symptomatic that doesn't necessarily mean they have to come back to treatment or that a relapse is impending it may mean that something changed in their life and they've got to adjust so okay you know let's let's figure out how to adjust so you can continue forward toward your rich and meaningful life so relapse is a return to a prior state of functioning. So return to depression, return to anxiety, return to, you know, when people um, relapse with certain physical problems, you know, that you're returning to that. Um, relapse stages. You know, you've, the typical stages we think of in relapse is the cognitive triad. And oftentimes it starts with emotional relapse. People start feeling bleh. Uh, but not always. So we're going to talk about emotional relapse warning signs, mental relapse warning signs, and physical relapse warning signs. Like I said earlier, relapses often start long before the person has a return to the prior state. So one of the things we need to do is backward chain. So I want you to think for a few minutes about um, backward chaining for a depressive episode that you've had client come in and they're like I was doing really well and then all of a sudden I am you know clinically depressed again or maybe the first time they come into your office they're like oh I am so depressed I've been this way for two months. Okay so there's two months. Now before two months what happened? You know what happened that changed that led up to this did you know and have them start thinking about environmental triggers and different things that may have contributed to the development Of their current depressive episode you know when people relapse from substances you know a lot of times when we look backwards and same thing was with um, mood disorders too when we look backwards we find out that they were doing great they were in treatment they were doing the next right thing they were really focused on their recovery and then they started feeling better and that's great but as soon as they started feeling better they're like okay I don't need to do that crap anymore I'm I'm cured well no, you go back to doing the same old things, you're going to get the same old results. So when people start burning the candle at both ends and getting stressed out and not taking care of themselves and not reaching out for social support and not practicing mindfulness and and you know other things like that, they slowly creep into that old behavior pattern that had existed before. They're setting themselves up physically, mentally and emotionally for a relapse Relapses do however indicate that the old way is more rewarding than the new way. So one of the questions we want to ask is why? you know somebody may be going along fine, and then they get some really bad news and they're just like feel like they got kicked in the gut and Then they go and have a drink or they experience significant depression and you know at that point in time that crisis was so overwhelming, was so powerful that the new skills they had just didn't touch it. You know, they were just like, yeah, that, that ain't doing nothing and I can't I can't tolerate this pain. Um, for people whose relapses came on a little bit slower, then we want to look and say, okay, why, what was not rewarding about doing mindfulness? What was not rewarding about eating healthfully? You know, what was, you know, A lot of times with eating healthfully, one of the things I hear is, it just, it takes too much time. I was spending so much time in the kitchen, and I don't even like to cook. Okay, so let's look at some shortcuts. What are some things that you can do so you can still eat healthfully and not be eating fast food or whatever all the time? So we do want to go back and look and say, what was more rewarding? Even though you knew it could lead to problematic symptoms, you chose that path. So why? There's a, there was a benefit to it, and you were hoping for something. Relapse prevention planning means developing a recovery-based lifestyle that includes emergency plans. So it's not just developing these emergency plans for mitigating, you know, this crisis and this trigger and this thought. It's creating a lifestyle, taking care of your health, taking care of your social supports, taking care of your emotions and creativity and all that stuff. It's a lifestyle. Just like when you go on a diet, you know, if you go on one of those hardcore diets and you may lose a lot of weight really fast, but then as soon as you lose that weight and you stop doing the diet, what happens? For a lot of people, that weight comes right back on because they didn't adopt a healthy eating lifestyle. They adopted a temporary diet. Um, Same sort of thing for for mood and, and psychological issues. We want to help people adopt a... Positive outlook, you know, work on cognitive restructuring, use psychological flexibility, you know, develop ways to deal with life on life's terms that will help them feel continue to feel better in the long term. But it's got to be something that they can and are willing and motivated to do in the long term. Can they see themselves five years from now, you know, doing a mindfulness exercise every morning while they're drinking their coffee? And that's probably not too hard to envision. Um, So thinking about that and encouraging clients to be realistic when they create their recovery lifestyle. So when we start working with clients on developing a relapse prevention plan, the first thing we're going to ask is, why did you do it? Why did you use drugs? Why did you eat um, for reasons other than hunger? Why did you gamble? Why did you get depressed? You know, what was it that happened that, caused this and that's kind of that backward chaining we want to know what happened uh, what triggered it for you uh, and you know remembering that a lot of these things are complex it's not just one thing it's not just you know you started hating your job or you got a new boss at work that's could be a contributing factor but okay you that new boss at work they came you don't like them you don't get along so it was stressful how else did that impact you it may impact your motivation for work it may interrupt your sleep you know there's a lot of things that we want to look at but looking at those triggers what precipitated the current symptoms and remember from the class we did on the trans theoretical and trans diagnostic approaches to treatment that there are a lot of things that may have may cause any of these Symptoms. One of the things that kind of gets under my skin right now, um, there's a commercial for one of those lawsuit places, um, and, and she's talking about a drug that is commonly prescribed for bipolar disorders, and saying that you know if you developed pathological gambling while taking this drug, you can sue. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder, especially the manic episode is risky, high-risk behavior, such as gambling. So if they were taking that medication and they developed pathological gambling issues, could that possibly indicate that maybe the medication just wasn't working? But I digress. (laughs) So the other question we want to ask is when you're not symptomatic, when you don't have whatever this problem is, what's different? You know, if somebody stress eats, they're probably not doing that 24 hours a day. So when you're not eating, what are you doing? Are you working? Are you walking the dog? I had one client I worked with who was trying to quit smoking, um, and he wouldn't smoke in front of his kids. He wouldn't smoke around his kids. He didn't want them exposed to secondhand smoke. So we talked about, well, what can you do to spend more time hanging out with your kids? Because that was something he enjoyed doing. And that started helping. So in the evening when he'd come home, they would eat dinner, and then he and his son would go out and play basketball in the backyard, and that worked, and that helped him start um, backing down. The next thing we've got to ask clients is what do they want to change about what's going on? So mentally, you know, do they want to work on changing their thoughts, their assessment of things, their appraisal of things? Emotionally, what do they want to address? Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Are they angry? Do they feel guilt? Do they have resentment? There's all kinds of words we can use. Let's talk about what emotional issues might be there. Environmentally, what are you willing to change? You know, we've talked about putting positive triggers in the environment as well as removing um, triggers for unpleasant behaviors. Physically, what do you want to change? Or are you willing, I think I should have said, are you willing to change? Because we know that Good sleep and good nutrition are so essential. I know I sound like a broken record. And getting enough light to set those circadian rhythms is so essential in recovery from mood and addictive disorders. Um, Then ask them, what are your triggers? What triggers your unpleasant mood or your desire to use? And, you know, a lot of times I'm doing this in an individual session with people so they can just throw things out. Y'all know I have a, a whiteboard in my office and I write on that. You know, we just put it all up there instead of trying to write on a paper and share and that kind of stuff. We just throw it all up there and mind map it. You know, whatever comes out is what comes out. And then we start talking about, okay, how can you prevent and mitigate each one? Now, if you did this in group, you know, that's cool too. You could do, ask all of these questions in group and either ask it of the whole group or break people into smaller groups, you know, of two to four And have them interview each other and come up with answers to these and share them with the whole group later. Uh, Whatever you think is more effective for your particular population. Um, What potential obstacles do you envision and how can you deal with them? And this is a great one to have people who are in different stages of recovery start talking or different... experiences in recovery. Some people who've been through recovery and relapsed once or twice will have some sage advice, and other people who haven't been through it may have some creative ideas that nobody thought of before. But we do want to think about obstacles to recovery, so anything that's going to keep you from being able to be emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, and environmentally comfortable, stable, whatever you want to call it. What are some old behaviors, thoughts, or feelings that warn you that relapse might be coming? And we're going to look at a bunch of those in a minute. And what are your expectations about relapse? And some people are like, expectations? Uh, it's going to suck. Um, <laughs> and what I'm really getting at here is, do you expect to relapse? Do you think that it's inevitable? And we'll talk. I mean, people with bipolar disorder or clinical depression may have recurrences of their symptoms you know that is a distinct possibility they don't necessarily have to be as intense and there are a lot of things they can do to you know stave it off if you will um, by taking good care of themselves but if they relapse or if they start noticing relapse warning signs we want to make sure that they have a plan in place to take action the next question is what does a rich and meaningful life look like for you so Sometimes, you know, that's a weird question to ask people. So I rephrase it and say, imagine it's your last day on earth. What would you do? Who would you spend it with? Would you be satisfied with the way that your life turned out? And if not, what do you wish you had done? So this is your last day on earth. You're taking an inventory or you're standing up there at the pearly gates with St. Peter, taking an inventory, however you envision it. Are you happy with the way things turned out? And if not, what would you like it to look like and then how can we make that happen um obviously some clients you know you're going to have to rein them in a little bit so they don't go well you know i wish i would have had a million dollars and um and, and whatever else but uh you know we do want to look at what is important for you and what is going to help you feel happy so carolyn sh- shares that she would like to be with her husband and boys in the caribbean cool you know Caribbean cruises are relatively affordable, and it's something you can do. You may not live there, but you certainly could vacation there. Um, Who are your helpful social supports? Make sure clients have a list of those so they're not trying to think of them in an emergency. Um, And for any type of recovery, they have their normal social supports that are their friends and their family and yada, yada. We also want to have support group members on there. So if they're in a depression support group or a grief support group or 12-step or whatever, um, ideally have somewhere else they can also reach out um, that is, you know, I hate to say more objective, but, you know, you don't want to just limit it to friends and family. And, yes, no toxic people, even if they are family. Um, and that's, we really want to talk about helpful social supports because there are, you know, there are a lot of people that are, alive and breathing and they could talk to me but they're not helpful so you know those are not the people I call what is your mindfulness plan and we talk a lot about when are you going to do your mindfulness check-ins and you know there are other groups where we teach mindfulness but initially I tell them mindfulness is just checking in with yourself at least three times a day and saying how am I doing how am I feeling and what am I needing bada bing that's all there is you know Checking in with themselves, and then they can make a better plan of action from there. So, if they're drinking their coffee in the morning or whatever, they're eating their cereal and they check in with themselves and they go, I am sluggish today, I did not sleep last night very well last night, and I really want to go back to bed. Well, going back to bed might not be an option because they've got to go to work, but with that knowledge, they probably know that they are not going to be on their A game, so they can figure out how to be a little bit more compassionate with themselves. And what is your self-care plan? How are you going to take care of yourself mentally so you're not bombarded with toxic thoughts? Um, how are you going to take care of yourself emotionally so you are immersed in things that remind you of happy, happiness instead of tragedy? How are you going to take care of your environment so, you know, it's a pleasant environment to be in? How are you going to take care of yourself physically so you're rested and nourished and relatively pain-free most of the time? How are you going to take care of yourself socially so you have enough social connections that are healthy that you feel connected? And that may be two for some people, or it may be 20. But you, know, you want people to start thinking about what that looks like for them. And these are things you can send people home after you... you go over relapse prevention education and have them start thinking about these things and the handout that i give my clients is much more detailed than this it asks very specific questions so then when we meet again we put it all together oops so essential skills for relapse prevention is mindfulness that's you know a number one if you're not aware of what you're doing you're maybe headed down the road to relapse i mean think about if you're driving somewhere and you're just you're not even paying attention to what you're doing and you get to your destination and you're like darn it i don't remember how i got here i got here but i have no idea you know my mind was somewhere else well that can happen with clients too um and and in recovery if they're just going along on autopilot you know stuff may happen and they may end up at a destination they don't want to be at so encouraging them to do mindfulness it takes 2 minutes 3 times a day it's not you know Earth-shattering. Vulnerability prevention. And that really looks at making sure that the person knows what makes them more likely to get depressed or get anxious or become symptomatic. Uh, For a lot of us, again, circadian rhythms, sleep, nutrition, um, and social issues in your social support system are often a lot of your vulnerabilities. Like when I get sick... I am a great big old cranky pants, and I know that. So I need to try to prevent getting sick. When I'm in pain, I don't sleep well. When I don't sleep well, I'm more likely to be unpleasant to be around. So, you know, those are things that I try to hedge off so I can prevent those vulnerabilities. Distress tolerance skills. Clients need to have them. Urge surfing. You know, teaching them that an urge and a feeling, as long as you don't feed it, tends to come in, crest, and go out within about 20 minutes, which is great, but sitting there thinking about it going, I am really depressed. Well, this depression should go away in about 20 minutes. I am really depressed. Now, that doesn't work because you're feeding it. You're focusing on it. You're you're there. Um, so when you urge surf identifying where you are recognizing that it's probably well is going to go out um, and then finding something else to do and then you can check back in with yourself in a few minutes but a lot of times when people have unpleasant emotions maybe you got a bad review from your boss and you're just like oh my gosh i am so stressed out and if they go outside and they take a walk around or or do something for 10 or 15 minutes regardless of what they did if they distracted themselves they will feel a lot better because that gives the adrenaline and the um, other stress hormones time to kind of dissipate and helps people get into their, as we call it in DBT, wise mind. Um, Accepts and improve. I talk about these a lot. They are acronyms from dialectical behavior therapy that provide people options of things that they can do to get through that Get through that wave, if you will. A stands for activities. Do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. C stands for contribute. You know, volunteer. Sometimes that'll make you feel better if you volunteer to help somebody and you get involved in a project. Um, comparisons. Compare yourself to someone else who's maybe may not be doing as well. I don't like that one, but it's there. Um, e stands for help me with this one. Encouragement is the E and improve. I always get the E's mixed up. Um, uh, but you, you get the point here. P in one of them is prayer. Um, P in the other one is push away. Well, anyway, without my visual prompts, I am just useless. But um, accepts and improve. You can Google it. There are tons and tons of handouts that you can print out that have accepts and improve. And then unhooking. Y'all know this is another one of my favorite tools and it comes from acceptance and commitment therapy where instead of saying I am depressed you can say I am having the feeling or the thought that I am depressed cuz just like clouds, you know, cloud animals, you'll see one we saw one the other day and it looked like a frog. It was really cute and you know shortly it morphed into something else and uh you know yes that's what we do. I still do. Um <laughs> but feelings and thoughts are the same way they're there and then suddenly they're not you know they just kind of melt away so if you unhook and you say I'm having the feeling that another feeling will be along shortly to replace it hoping skills radical acceptance so important for anybody where they can say you know what this is really uncomfortable you know or this really sucks. Um, but at least my symptoms will go away in a few days. If you get really bad news, you can say, you know, this is, this is really awful right now. But I know that with time, I will learn how to deal with it or, or whatever. Accepting it is what it is. There is nothing you can do to change it. If you're angry, you know, you have this feeling of anger, accept it. I accept that I am having the feeling of anger or I'm feeling angry right now, what can I do to improve the next moment? You know, I don't have to stay here. But radical acceptance says it is what it is in this moment. But the very next moment doesn't have to be the same way. We want to make sure people have good problem-solving skills. And if they don't, make sure they have a support person that does to prompt them through it. And remember when we talk about um, temperament, people who are judgers, People who are really structured tend to get thrown for a loop when anything unplanned happens. Um, so problem solving can become really difficult when the world goes a little bit hooey on them. Whereas people who are more spontaneous or your perceivers do really well thinking on their feet and flying by the seat of their pants. So if you've got somebody who is really structured, you know, make sure that they have a plan B and a plan C. But hopefully their plan C is... Somebody they can call who can think more clearly in emergencies. The ABCs of of REBT, those are great. And behavior modification principles. If they're wanting to change something, they got to know how to change. They got to understand motivation. They've got to understand reinforcement. They've got to understand behavior strain like we talked about on Tuesday. The four Ds in relapse prevention, delay, because cravings and emotions crest in 20 minutes-ish. Distract, cravings and distress passes more quickly when engaged in a distracting activity for a few minutes, so you're not just thinking about it. It's kind of like when you get a shot. You know, it seems to hurt a lot less, probably because you tense up less, if you're thinking about something else than if you're sitting there looking at the needle as it goes into your arm. So delay, distract. Distract. Deep breathing or de-stress. Deep breathing exercises can keep you from making rash decisions. It can help people get their heart rate down and get their brain to start secreting some of those relaxation chemicals, the, you know, the all clear for the threat response system. But focused mindfulness can also be helpful. You know, making sure that people look at something you know, whatever it is that they want to look at that they can focus on, whether it's a a candle flame or, you know, I've got this little quartz thing right here, something that they can look at and just kind of get immersed in. Um, Or they can even go outside and look at the clouds if it happens to be a day with a lot of the, um, you know, real fluffy cumulus clouds and Make cloud animals, whatever it is that keeps them happy. But focusing on something. And a fish tank. A fish tank, that is an excellent suggestion, Jesse. That does help a lot of people. If you could just focus on the little fishy. And decatastrophize. Encourage clients to write these questions down somewhere. Um, And we'll talk about where to write them in a minute. But they need to challenge their thoughts. What are the facts for and against my belief that this is the end of the world or that i'm going to die or that i can't tolerate this do i have enough information to even make a judgment so we want to make sure the person's getting objective facts that say you know you're right you are not going to make it through this or you know what there's no evidence to support your thought is this emotional reasoning and teaching clients about emotional reasoning is really helpful because they start learning to separate facts from feelings when they're getting ready to get on an airplane and they're thinking oh my gosh this is so dangerous i'm going to die well what are the facts for and against that the research actually shows it's a whole lot safer to fly than to drive and you know so we talk about what are the facts but they start thinking that it's dangerous and scary because they feel scared um am i focusing on just one aspect of the situation uh what parts of this situation are in my control you know If you are going on an airplane and and you're scared, you know, okay, what parts of this are in your control? You can choose not to get on the airplane. You can choose to get on the airplane and, you know, talk to somebody so you're distracted during the flight. You know, there are things that you can do to either mitigate the emotional reaction or to remove yourself from the situation. And am I confusing high and low probability events? So what is the probability, if I get on this airplane, it's going to crash? You know, really, 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 really freaking slim. Because we only hear about the the planes that crash. We don't hear about the 40,000 planes that fly every single day that do so just fine. So the relapse prevention card. You fold a paper into four squares or into fourths, whatever makes the person happy. In the first square, have them write the four Ds, delay, distract, deep breathe, and decatastrophize with those little questions. On the second square, have them write three to five distraction ideas that work for them, what helps them distract themselves. On the third square, have them write down three or four of their most significant reasons for wanting to recover, for wanting to feel better, for wanting to do this. And on the fourth square, have them write some negative but accurate predictions for what will happen if they stop following their recovery plan. So. One of the things that I see a lot in people in recovery is when they start feeling better, they start wanting to go back to those old behaviors like working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week or and not taking care of themselves, not getting enough sleep, you know, those habits that wear people down, regardless of who you are. Um, So, we want to talk about what are some of the accurate predictions about what's going to happen. If you keep doing this, you know, if you keep sleeping three hours a night because you've got, quote, too much to do, what's going to be the consequence of that? Relapse triggers or are stimuli or conditions that prompt the person to think about or start returning to the previous state of functioning. So again, you know, we've talked about this some. I'm going to kind of skim over this one, but go over each aspect. And you can have the flip chart papers around the um, group room if you want to do that. Mental, what are some mental relapse triggers? Negative thinking, um, well, generally it's negative thinking or inability to kind of get outside the box. If you get stuck thinking it has to be this way. Um, Emotional, you know, what are some emotional triggers? Jealousy, envy, anger, pride, whatever. Environmental, remember visual, but also smell, olfactory, and auditory triggers. I had one client who... Um, I had in residential and he came up to me one day and he's like, Dr. Snipes, you know, I, I'm really struggling here. And I'm like, okay, Jim Bob, come here. Obviously his name wasn't Jim Bob. Uh, Tell me what's going on. He's like, well, my drug of choice is cocaine. And I'm like, okay. And every time I go into the cafeteria and people are making coffee and stuff, they're shaking down those sugar packets. And it reminds me of shaking down a baggie of cocaine. And it triggers me every single time. And I was like, oh, I had never thought that the sound of shaking down a sugar packet would be reminiscent. So we changed to the little pouring sugars. But... Understanding what those triggers are and the fact that he identified that and You know brought it to our attention was so awesome. You know, I couldn't have been more proud of of him at that point in time Um, So being aware of all the different sensory triggers Physical relapse triggers pain, you know some people when they're in pain, they want the pain to go away So they want to use opiates, you know, and it can be a downward spiral Exhaustion some people when they're exhausted You know, they want to pick me up, whether it's caffeine or nicotine or methamphetamine. Um, You know, it can be a relapse warning sign because even if they're artificially picking themselves up, eventually that body is going to run out of gas and just hit the wall, which can lead to clinical depression and poor nutrition. And then socially, what are your relapse triggers? Peer pressure to use, to go out, um, relationship challenges, low self-esteem, You know, these are all the things that become treatment plan issues later on. But we do want to know what these things are so the person is aware of them and can do their best to create an environment supportive of recovery. So emotional relapse warning signs. And this is true for substances, mood disorders, and even sometimes sickness. Isolation, irritability, blaming others for everything that goes wrong. Withdrawal from support groups or support people. Focusing on other people's problems, you know, getting your nose in theirs, because if you can focus on their stuff, you don't have to look at your own. Bottling up your emotions, which is never good, because as humans, we're like emotional pressure cookers. Guilt and feeling helpless and hopeless. So when people start showing any of these symptoms, um, you know, the person or the person's support group um, hopefully can somehow point that out or become mindful of that. So the person is aware that, oh, I might be going down a bad bad road here. Why did I suddenly start becoming irritable or isolating myself? Because that's nipping it in the bud. That's addressing that relapse before it becomes a full-blown relapse. This is an emotional relapse of sorts. Mentally, people may have drug or alcohol cravings, whether it's a mood disorder or a substance disorder. You know, people sometimes want to self-medicate. Lying, you know, being creative. About what's going on to try to get their own way or to keep people from asking too many questions. It's like, just leave me alone. You know, I have to wash my hair tonight. That's why I'm not going out. Pessimism and negativity, poor concentration, and difficulty making decisions. So, if your happy go lucky friend suddenly starts withdrawing and telling you that she's sick or she's got to help somebody out, and you know that's not true, you know, that might be something to pay attention to. If the client is doing these things and they notice it and they notice that they're making up stories to avoid going out with friends or to whatever so they can be more withdrawn, it's important to be aware of that too so they can check that behavior and go, why am I doing this? Because a lot of times when that happens, the person is already starting to hit that emotional overload place and they just can't take any more stimulation. They're just like, I, I'm, I'm done. I, I can't take any more. I, can't, I don't have any energy to help anybody else. Um, So when that happens, it's not too far before a full-blown relapse kicks in. And physical, changes in sleeping patterns, eating patterns, increased pain, restlessness, fatigue, slowing or heaviness, and GI distress. You know, if you feel, you notice that you're starting to have changes in sleeping, if if the client notices this, um, you know, it could be that they've changed their eating habits, but when we... Have changes in our sleeping patterns. It mucks with our circadian rhythm, which can lead to increased levels of cortisol, which can lead to increased levels of anxiety and or depression, you know, down the road. But so sleeping is important. Um, It's not just because I like it. Changes in eating. You know, people when they are depressed or anxious often eat to self-soothe or don't eat at all. They just have no appetite. So paying attention to that. if suddenly they have a change in eating that they didn't intend, You know what's prompting that and addressing whatever is prompting that symptom before it starts a cascade effect. Other warning signs, and we're going to kind of blow through some of these real fast because you know I want to get you out of here on time, but people will have a variations on some of these different warning signs that they may notice in themselves. For example, I feel like I've got a secret, but I don't know what it is. You know, the person may be trying to convince themselves that they're okay when deep down inside they really know they're not okay and their subconscious is going, um, hello? I get quiet around my friends for no particular reason. You know, if they're generally outgoing and all of a sudden this is a change, that might be a warning sign. I'm so preoccupied with my anxiety or whatever's going on that I stumble over my words or make other goofs or mistakes for no obvious reason. I get hung up on compulsive activity, like mindlessly playing solitary for hours on end. You know, it can be a good distraction if you can get in there, um, but if you do it for hours on end, or even surf the internet, or stay on social media for hours on end, um, it could indicate that you're trying to escape from something instead of just you wanted something to do. I think of reasons not to do the things I need to for recovery, like get to bed on time, exercise, or be mindful. When I get to do some obvious, when I get to some obvious trigger situation, I don't quickly avoid or block it. Sometimes people, if they're kind of on the precipice of having a, a uh, symptom resurgence, having a relapse, they may find a trigger situation and throw themselves headlong into it. Kind of like ripping that Band-Aid off. You know, it's just like, I know it's coming. So, or ripping a scab off. Um, so, th- those are things to be aware of. Um, Increases in free time, it, Gregory points out, that's definitely another one. If they have extra free time or they're withdrawing from activities so they have extra free time, that could be, you know, idle hands getting ready for problems. I get gloomy for no visible reason or no apparent reason. I get irritable, harsh, unfair, or aggressive for no reason I can explain. You know, you've just been short tempered lately. suddenly feel like a doormat and let people walk all over me I feel like I'm going to get revenge on people soon very soon I cut people out of my life and isolate myself or feel like doom is impending So, regardless of what issue we're talking about a lot of these signs are or thoughts that people may have or signs that they may notice so this is something um, people may want to look at and have as a recurring checklist when they start feeling like they might be headed down a path or even just once a month going through this list and checking off any that may sound like them so they get in touch with some things that may be more subconscious relapse prone thoughts i always encourage clients to approach approach with strength-based approaches and dialectics um you know, the person may say something like, I'm disappointed in recovery. I was promised a rose garden. You know, I thought it was gonna be great. I was life was gonna be ducky, and you know, this isn't as wonderful um as I had hoped. And and I'm kind of it was kind of a letdown. So we want to encourage the person to embrace the dialectics. You know, I hear you're disappointed about the fact that it's not as exciting as it you had hoped it would be. You know, what are the positives and what could you do to enhance it? You know, you're already doing these things and it's helping you feel a little bit better. So if you want that rose garden, if you want to enhance it even more, what can we do to help you move towards something that's even more fulfilling and rich and meaningful? Another thought people have is I'm a bad person. I should do the world a favor and just disappear. So we want to look at, you know, what are the facts for and against the fact that you're a bad person? and would, the, would it be doing the world a favor? Um, so encouraging people to really check their thoughts. Um, my life is unmanageable. You know, that's an extreme statement right there. My life is unmanageable, completely unmanageable. That indicates every aspect. Um, and relapsing or using will really help me get on top of it. So, you know, sticking with depression, because I think a lot of you are mental health counselors. You know, when people are depressed, life is unmanageable. It feels Miserable to even try to get out of bed some days. Um, And a lot of things start falling by the wayside because you don't have energy to do them. Guilt starts increasing. And it can feel just completely oppressive. But staying in that um, line of thought is going to probably send them into a relapse anyway because it increases their feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. So encouraging people to be more specific. What parts of your life are unmanageable and what do you have control over? Going back to that good old serenity prayer, um, grant me the courage to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So nobody cares or will know if I relapse or not because I'm nobody. Now, you can generally encourage people to look at the facts for and against that and what was that movie from the, the Christmas movie? Uh, it's a wonderful life. You know, it's a perfect example of helping somebody counter this thought. The person want, who wants me to change is a jerk, so why should I bother? Well, when people are trying to change for someone else, they're often going to have this thought. Um, so we want to make sure that they know the reasons why they want to change. What's the benefit to you? The person who's caused um, my relapse is a jerk, so I'll relapse and make him or her feel guilty. You know, I've heard and I've worked with clients who have gotten depressed at somebody. You know, look what you made me do. You know, if you kind of borderline-esque in its its flair, but they will drink at someone. Look what you made me do. They will get depressed and not be able to get out of bed and blame somebody else, hoping that they will feel guilty for the impact Do we really want to gamble that? Do we really want to gamble that somebody who has wronged us is actually going to care that much? Recovery is too hard. I'm afraid that people will expect too much from me. So that fear of success is huge. You know, people who fear um, getting better because if they get better, it's kind of like climbing to the top of that mountain and then being concerned that you're going to fall again. And if you fall, you, you don't, think you can climb that mountain again it's too hard uh, and when people are in recovery they also feel like their supports and everybody else expects more out of them you know so now they're in recovery now they can be responsible now they can be this that and the other now they can do this so it's important for them to make sure that they are be able to able to communicate assertively and set boundaries so they don't get themselves into a position where people might be expecting too much. The world is against me. It's hopeless. There's nothing the matter with me, so why do I need a program? I just need to push through. Um, I've worked with a lot of people, especially older adults, um, like my grandparents' age, uh, who felt this way. They're like, you know, I don't need any of that counseling stuff. I just need to suck it up, and, you know, everything will be fine. And that's not necessarily true. So encouraging people, it took me a long time to get my grandma to recognize that, you know, there might be something more to it, or at least, you know, the doctor might be able to help you feel better now instead of waiting for a year and hoping it gets better. Trying to change is pointless, so screw it. My recovery is ironclad, so I don't need to do that recovery stuff anymore. I can go back to doing whatever I want. And all of these are thoughts that lead a person toward not following their recovery lifestyle plan, and potentially behaving mindlessly, which will allow a relapse to sort of sneak up on them. Um, By relapsing, I'll get even at my funeral. They'll be sorry. That is if anybody shows up. Um, So we have a lot of low self-esteem here, as well as need for validation and need for vengeance that may need to be worked through. Certain people want me to relapse, and I'll oblige them. Again, relapsing at someone is an act of defiance and an act of um, power in some ways. So we want to look at how we can help people get back their power, how they feel um, disempowered because they can't make somebody else like them or support them. I cannot handle my shame and guilt sometimes it does feel like that. So encouraging people to, you know, take it one step at a time. And if you feel overwhelmed by your shame and guilt, let's work on that right now. Instead of just saying, I can't handle it. Not going to do it. Just leave me, lo- leave me alone. I can't handle the emotional pain. I'll never be able to undo all the harm I've done to other people or the mistakes I've made. So I should forever punish myself, which is what a relapse is. It's like, I don't deserve to be happy because I have made mistakes, so I need to continue lashing myself with a wet noodle per, in, per, in perpetuity. What good does that do? So we want to look at what's the function, if you're telling the, yourself this, what is the function of your reaction? How, how is that helping you get towards a rich and meaningful life? Or why are you not feeling like you're worthy of moving towards being happy? I'm making no progress, it's hopeless. I've made up my mind, I'll never relapse, case closed. Um, If I get better, then I might not be able to tolerate another relapse. So a lot of these sound very similar to one another. When we talk about relapse prevention planning, again, relapse prevention involves developing that recovery lifestyle and planning for emergencies. Mindfulness is important to help people be aware of their relapse-prone thoughts, catastrophic thinking, And relapse warning signs. Relapse prevention planning needs to begin at admission. And that's what I talked about adding those climbing cams. So when they fall, if they fall, they only fall back a little bit. They don't fall all the way down to the bottom. You know, it catches them to prevent them from going too far down. And one of the things you can do is create a, a handout that has a little climber and you can put. Um, handholds, you know, they're not the cams, but you can put little handholds on that poster and have the person identify different points in their recovery that, you know, they, if they fall back to, you know, it's, it's okay. It's It's a safe stopping point. It's a plateau where they can be regroup and then start climbing again. Relapse means that the new behavior or lifestyle was using more energy than the reward was worth. So we've got to figure out, why was it more rewarding at that point in time to go back to the old behavior? And a lot of times, I have yet to find a behavior that didn't make sense um, in terms of recovery or avoiding pain, getting, getting away from something that was causing just excruciating emotional or physical pain. So, you know, we need to look at in what way the new behavior was not effective and in what behavior the old, in what, in what way the old behavior was way more effective and efficient. And then figure out how to swap that around. So the new behavior is a little stronger, which is another one of the reasons I don't want people to beat themselves up if they relapse. Because, you know, it's a learning process. And when you're learning these new skills, yeah, they're not going to be as strong as your old tried and true skills that didn't always work. So, if there's a slip here and there, let's learn from it and figure out what we need to do differently to make this plan effective for you. Okay, that is it for today. Are there any questions? The PowerPoint is located in the class. You you can download the PDF right now. And the video version will actually be up on our YouTube channel in about four hours. So. All righty, everybody, have an amazing weekend, and I will see you... Tuesday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs.